Hello and welcome to this BICOM podcast. I'm Sam, the Research Associate at BICOM, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Sir John Jenkins. John has a wealth of experience and knowledge in the Middle East and British diplomacy, having spent 35 years working for the Foreign Office, where he became the government's most senior diplomatic Arabist. Since leaving the Foreign Office, John has held many roles at prestigious universities and think tanks, and he is currently a senior fellow at Policy Exchange and a board member at Cambridge University's MENA Forum. John, thank you for giving us your time today. You're welcome. I thought we could start with Saudi Arabia. It's a yeah. country you know very well, having been the British ambassador there between 2012 to 2015. Given your knowledge about the Saudi monarchy, how do you think the Salman family will be feeling about the incoming Biden administration? And of course, when we talk about the Saudi royal family, I mean, it's a very large family, but, but if we're talking about the people who matter, which are the people at the top, they liked Trump, clearly. I mean, there was, I think, uh, they didn't like Obama, uh, or they didn't like the Obama administrations because they thought the Obama administration acted, particularly on Iran, against their interests. And some of the things that Obama said in his Cairo speech uh, and in later comments, I think would have struck them as uh, as very patronizing and misguided. You know, when he says, you know, when he said famously that Saudi Arabia and Iran should learn to share the region together. I mean, there's so much wrong with that. And from a Saudi perspective, it would have been uh, been extraordinarily uh, grating and worrying. So I think, you know, with Trump coming in and, you know, establishing a personal relationship with MBS, particularly through Kushner, and having the sort of uh, robust public positions that, that Pompeo articulated about, about Iran in particular, I think uh, they liked that. There were, there were certain things they, they, they still wouldn't have liked about the Trump administration, this idea that, you know, that, that America is withdrawing from the Middle East, which was actually a constant between Obama and, and, and Trump, although it was very hard to see how that was reflected in what the Trump administration actually did, if you think about the troops they still got in Syria and Iraq. But by and large, they felt comfortable with it because it, it, was, it, 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 it was a sort of, I think they'd have seen it from Riyadh, however, however it's seen from inside the Beltway or from, uh, or from the New York Times. They saw it as uh, uh, essentially a pragmatic and realpolitik-oriented sort of administration, away from the, the human rights democracy lecturing of, of Condi Rice uh, in, in her famous speech about about human rights and democracy, and particularly Obama. So they like to, they like Trump. Uh, they'll be nervous about, about, about Biden, I think, for, for, for precisely these reasons. Uh, you know, what sort of administration will the Biden administration, but would it be Obama three? He's brought in a lot of people from the, uh, uh, the Obama administration. Jake Sullivan's there, Tony Blinken. I mean, Tony Blinken, of course, goes back a long way with Biden himself. Michelle Flournoy, if she is you know, nominated as uh, Secretary of Defense. And, you know, if it's, if it's a return to what the Saudis would see as an Obama set of positions on the Middle East, then I think it, this would not suit the Saudis uh, at all. And they, they'll have noticed the sort of things that Biden and others have said about the importance of human rights, about Saudi Arabia in particular, about the war in Yemen. So I think, you know, by and large, they'll be nervous. My guess is, and I, they'd be very wise to engage with the Biden administration very early on. I think Yemen is an issue that, that needs to be resolved. I think the Saudis want it to be resolved, but clearly they want it to be resolved in a way that that doesn't leave them looking as if they've lost, which is, you know, an issue with every issue uh, that, that the Saudis, uh, the Saudis face. The one big positive from a Saudi point of view is actually the, the, the realignment of, of, of relationships at a public level, particularly between between Bahrain, uh, uh, UAE, Israel, to a certain extent, Sudan, and that that does sort of that is a sort of fait accompli, and, and you know, it, and it is in itself a very good thing. 
which 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 means that the Biden administration coming in is not facing the same is not will not be dealing with the Middle East as it was left at the end of the Obama administration. It's a different sort of Middle East, and that gives the Saudis something to work with, which is clearly, I think, you know, one of the reasons behind this 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 meeting that was but wasn't at Neom. Yeah, absolutely. That, that meeting also was fascinating. The fact that. Netanyahu obviously went back to, to Israel after the meeting and fed to the media he had met them. And then the Saudis come and said, actually, they hadn't. And it kind of showed that there's still this power play within Saudi Arabia between King Salman and his son, Mohammed bin Salman. A lot of people speculate that MBS is actually willing to make moves to Israel after the Biden administration gets in place to kind of gain favour with them. Do, do you think MBS has the power, enough power to make that kind of move unilaterally? Or do you think he still has the I thought the way it was leaked and then denied by the Saudis was, that was, was, was hysterically funny. Um, I mean, you know, when I was in, in, in Jerusalem, when, we were, when I was dealing with the Middle East, I mean, it was a rule of thumb that anything, anything that, that, that you told the, uh, the Israeli authorities was leaked within about 10 minutes. <laughs> I mean, and, and Netanyahu is a, is, a, is a master of this. Then, of course, the Saudis put a place in Haran to deny it. And blot it. But in a way, the denial is not a denial... I mean, if you look at it as a sort of performative act, it's, it's not actually saying it didn't happen. It's what it's saying is, is we're not going to say it happened. So our position, so, so it's a message to Israel, it seemed to me, that denial. Because it's, it was, you know, you may think that by making it public, you will then make it look as if we're going to normalize relations. Mm-hmm. But by, by us saying it didn't happen, even though it did, it tells you that there are limits to how far we can go at the moment uh, in, uh, in acknowledging publicly, with all the consequences it has for, for actually what happens on a policy level, um, the relationship. I think both sides were, were probably content with the fact that people knew it had happened, because it sends a set of signals. It sends a set of signals to Iran, and it sends a set of signals to the US. The normalization thing, I still don't see. You can, you can see what the Emirat is and what the Bahrain has got from this. You can see what the Israelis got from it, from the normalization between the three of them. You can see what they would get, what Sudan would get from doing it. And what I can't see at the moment what the Saudis would get from it. If there's a deal to be done on these issues, you want to make sure that you get something that matters to you from it. So what's that thing? And I, I can't see at the moment quite what that thing is. Mm-hmm. I think the Saudis certainly want to be in the room when any fresh negotiations with Iran or over Iran happen, which was something, of course, that wasn't the case before. I think that, is, that would be a big thing for them. I think the Saudis would want to see a weakening, if not a, a, a dissolution of the effective alliance between uh, Qatar and Turkey. And the Turks, I think, have between 3,000 and 5,000 troops still in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Qatar. That strikes me as bizarre with all its echoes of the late 19th century and so forth, you know, Ottoman, Ottoman efforts in the Gulf. And I think, you know, that they'd want some sort of acknowledgement from the, from the, from the Gatteries, even if it's in private, that the Saudis have primacy over, over a number of, of sensitive issues. So you can see that a deal would, 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 would exist, but it wouldn't just be about Saudi-Israel. It would be about Saudi-Iran, Saudi-Turkey, Saudi-Qatar. Saudi, um, uh, and, and, and knitting that together, you, I mean, it's, it's, it's not the sort of thing you can knit together with, with you know, shuttle diplomacy by the uh, administration which is on its way out. It, 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 has, I mean, it seems to me, and I, you know, I could be entirely wrong about this because who the hell knows what, what, what goes on within the Royal Court in Saudi Arabia. But it seems to me that if there is going to be some move in this direction, the Saudis, it's going to wait till the Biden administration because it's something the Saudis can give the Biden administration and it needs to be something that benefits the Saudis as much as it benefits Israel.
Mm. I mean, of course, there has been, the Saudis have said that they were, or told the Americans that they will allow overflights, the uh, Israeli overflights, um, which is a big thing in itself. Although we know in the past that there has been tacit agreements to Israeli military flights over Saudi Arabia or the Saudi territory. So, you know, I, I, I don't think personally, I mean, I'll look very foolish if, it, if it's announced next week, but I don't think personally this is, this is imminent. I think the Saudis need something out of this, which, which, they, which they haven't got at the moment, and it's not an offer at the moment, but it may be an offer if the Biden administration decides to, to be creative. Let's move on to Iran, because obviously Iran's in the, in the headlines yep. at the moment, and, and obviously last week, one of its kind of leading nuclear scientists was assassinated. Did you think it's definitely intended to stop the bomb, to stop diplomacy, or to stop something completely different? Well, first of all, it's not new. I mean, you know, there, there, was, there was a wave of, of assassination, mysterious assassinations of, uh, of Iranians connected to a nuclear program a decade ago. Mm. Uh, if you think about, so 2007, when, when, the, when the Israelis destroyed the, the Syrian uh, research reactor, they also assassinated, or somebody, somebody assassinated General Suleiman, who was the, the then head of the, of, the, of, the Syrian, of the Syrian program uh, at his beach house in Tartus. So this sort of stuff has happened before. It, didn't, it then stopped happening, and my assumption at the time was that that was because the Americans had put pressure on Israel, assuming the Israelis were doing it, and, you know, um, uh, to stop uh, making it difficult for, for the Obama administration to pursue the goal of a, of a nuclear deal with Iran. I think a lot of things took, were, were stopped because for the Obama administration, that was the big diplomatic achievement. I think it was a mistake to see that as, as, on its own, as a sort of isolated diplomatic achievement that meant something. These assassinations have stopped, although we've seen other, uh, of course, Israeli strikes on IRGC and uh, militia, related militia uh, sites and, 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 and targets in, in, inside Syria and also actually in Iraq. So it's not in itself unprecedented. He was very high, he was, he was very high profile, I mean, in, in the nuclear field, and he was, he was clearly of high value. The assassination was complex. It would have taken a long time to prepare. So this would, this would, this would not have been a spur of the minute uh, operation, although the, the decision to go ahead with it may have been taken at the last minute. It's certainly a signal to Iran, and the signal to Iran is we can get any, whoever it was, we can get anybody, anytime, anywhere. And it's the same sort of thing that, you know, the exfiltration of the, all those nuclear files in the warehouse in central Tehran two years ago, which was an extraordinary coup, I thought. And again, that tells the Iranians, you know, your domestic security services are either lousy or they're penetrated. And I think, for, for me, that's actually the most important signal. Is it a signal to the US? Yeah, I guess. Whoever did it, assuming it was done by somebody with a relationship with the United States, I assume... I assume that the United States would have been consulted, though that, that assumption is, 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 I mean, that's just an assumption. And we know in the past that the Americans have been blindsided by various things, not just by the Israelis, but by the Saudis, for example, over the, over the start of the decisive storm in, in, in Yemen. I mean, if I, was in, if I was in the Biden administration, what lesson would I, I would think I would draw the conclusion from it that if you want to have a policy on it, if you, as the, American, the Biden administration wants a new activist policy on Iran, you're going to have to take into account Mm. Israeli interests as well as Saudi interests. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. I mean, the idea that this is designed to make the, the Iranians, you know, uh, start a war, this seems to me completely misconceived. I mean, you know, when, when Soleimani and uh, Mohandas got vaporized at the beginning of the year, everybody was saying it's going to be a war. I mean, there wasn't. I mean, there was a you know, few rockets fired on and nothing. Yeah. And I know, you know, they all say we're going to take bloody revenge. Well, okay, maybe. And, you know, maybe in, in the fullness of time. But it hasn't happened yet. 
one of the things I, I want to ask you was about kind of processes. So I think the issue around Iran is very well known. Biden wants to kind of return to a JCPOA as, as a first step to kind of renegotiate it and then as you said to work with allies in the region to kind of tackle the other issues like ballistic missile program destabilizing activities i think what's less obvious is kind of what is the best process to reach that end goal is it just think a question of sequencing so does the nuclear agreement come first and then we try and reach agreements on other issues a bit like obama or should all the issues be kind of related into one simultaneously and we try and kind of tackle them together and then reach kind of this grand bargain not so much issues, but how kind of do we go around doing it? Because I think that's where the, the tension lies. The JCPOA, as it was, is dead in the water. And, uh, and the Iranians have said as much. I mean, they're clearly keeping their powder dry, as it were. I mean, they've enriched more uranium to, to, uh, to 20%. So they're now over the limits. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions, which the IAEA were sort of hinted at from the from, you know, previous uh, um, uh, activities. And that, and the, you know, and, the, and the, 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 there's talk of, of new sites being built or, or other sites being expanded, new centrifuges introduced, and so forth. But they may be waiting to see what's on offer on the nuclear file, particularly on on, on the nuclear file on on, on on you know JCPOA two. They've also said that if there's going to be a this, then they will need to be compensated for the losses that have come from the reapplication, particularly reapplication of U.S. bilateral sanctions. I don't see that as a starter at all. Though it may be that there is that there is that there is a discussion to be had between the two sides in private, and of course Jake Sullivan was one of the key actors in, in, the, in the JCPOA, and he's now back. Bill Burns being the other, and there's some talk about Bill Burns in a way being activated. So that I, I assume the Biden administration will explore the options. I don't think that it's open to them, or that they would want to, just resurrect the, the JCPOA. Because I think they themselves have recognised that it was flawed because it doesn't didn't didn't involve these 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 other things, and the Iranian economy now is under far more pressure than it was when when the JCP. Although the, it was under pressure then because it had been cut off from the international banking system through the um, through the actions uh, uh, concerning SWIFT. But the Iranian economy is, is clearly suffering. Oil prices are still around forty dollars a barrel. You know, there's a lot of pressure in, building inside Iran. So when people say, you know, this policy pressure hasn't worked. That's, 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 they say that on the assumption that policy is designed to produce the overthrow of the Islamic Republic, which I don't think it is. I think it's designed to raise the costs of the Islamic Republic of doing other things in the region and, and pursuing this, this particular track. And I think it has done that. The question of how the other things are introduced, I mean, that, that was, I, and I understand why it was, it, was, it was problematic for the Americans, because the Iranians said, we're not going to discuss this other stuff. That is outside the bounds of it. Um, and I don't think that the Iranians will change their position on that. You know, I don't, for the Iranians, their presence and their activities inside Iraq, uh, in Syria and in Lebanon are too valuable to them. And they're increasingly valuable because the economy is tanking. So, you know, this whole business of, of, of energy cooperation between Iran and Iraq, this whole question of banking cooperation, this whole question of, of military sales and the rest of it, is essentially designed to, 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 to position Iraq as, as, the, as the external set of financial lungs for the Iranian economy. And you see it in Lebanon as well. You look at the way that Hezbollah have embedded themselves in the banking system and the education system, in the social welfare system and so forth. This is all part of the same model. And it benefits Iran because that's how they breathe. The way you address that, and, I, and I've thought this for years, is through a proper policy of containment and deterrence. So there are two things that happen. You can have a, a deal on the nuclear fire, but then you need a, a policy of containment and deterrence to supplement that, to make, to make the cost of what the Iranians do with Qatar, Hezbollah or Badr or, or Assad al-Haq in Iraq, to raise the cost of what they do with Hezbollah in Lebanon and in Syria, and the way that they have essentially undermined all three states as states 
by the, by the, by the creation of these monstrous militias. You raise the costs to them of doing that. And you do everything you can to prevent these particular agents of, of, of Iranian influence benefiting. So the sort of things that actually Treasury Department, the Fed and, and, and the FBI have been doing in terms of trying to dry up funding uh, with targeted sanctions on individuals and on institutions related to, to things like Khatam uh, Lambier uh, or the various uh, 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 jihad organizations inside, inside Lebanon and Syria. Um, I think, you know, do that. But, but, you, but that needs to be a deliberate policy, a deliberately constructed policy of containment and deterrence. And the deterrence thing is basically making sure that if the Iranians cause uh, trouble in the Gulf, you do something about it. I mean, you know, the, the, there's been nothing, the Iranian provocations, I mean, you, some of them may be minor, some of them haven't. You know, flying drones over US warships is actually an, an aggressive act, which within the rules of, of law and within the, the um, terms of engagement of, the, of, US, of US armed forces, you can do something, you can shoot the damn thing down. You know, any, any fast ship that comes under your bows, you can shoot it out of the water. If, if you lose sight of it, it's a threat. But that needs to be in the, in the context of, 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 of a deliberate policy. And I think we, that's the thing we've lacked. We had the JCPOA, we didn't have the other policy. I mean, I, I completely agree with you, but I suppose having like a Trump administration driving that policy in, in the region would work. But the UK, France and Germany on the other side, it kind of creates around, it gives around these opportunities to create divisions and, and to weaken that policy to, to an extent. So do, do, do you think the UK would get on board with that, that kind of a policy or are they kind of stuck uh, in their uh, I, framework? I, I actually think it would. And I think if, if, you, have, if you have a hard-nosed negotiating process on the nuclear file, and then you have a, a, a coherent and robust, uh, but also well-balanced, well well-judged, deterrence and containment strategy, yes, I think we would. The Germans, I don't know, I mean, the Germans, you know, quite honestly, I think the Germans like selling, you know, Siemens, uh, uh, Mercedes, BMW, more than, it, more than they like um, uh, containment and deterrence strategies. France, you know, I've actually, I think France might as well. I mean, the, the, the French were, were actually in many ways the, the hardest over yeah. during a JCPOA negotiation. And there's a, there's a fantastic piece, which Fabius wrote actually at the time, about you know, what he thought of, of, of all of this and how the Iranians, he, in his view, essentially pulled the wool over the eyes of Kerry and his team. I think the French, the French are pretty hard-nosed on this, particularly you know, now with Macron and all the sort of the problems he's got. Yeah. I think, you know, and the challenges he's got, I should say. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Perhaps we can turn our attention to, to the, the Palestinian question. Yeah. It used to be kind of common sense that relations between Israel and the Arab world could not improve until there was a peace deal with the Palestinians. Um, clearly, that's plainly not the case now. From a UK perspective, should the new relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain change the UK's approach to the question of Israeli-Palestinian peace? The Palestinians aren't going anywhere. And the problem I have with all of this, and I'm, I'm all in favour uh, of these openings, because I, th I think they are constructive, and I think they, they, it, it takes away an argument which is essentially a sort of Jabotinskyad argument, which is, you know, we need the Iron Wall because the Arabs are irremediably hostile to us, therefore we need, you know, blah, blah, blah. Actually, no. I mean, I mean it's early days. We'll see, we'll see exactly what happens with, 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 the, with the volumes of Israeli tourists going into Dubai and, 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 and Manama and elsewhere. But I think it, 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 it's very possible. But you're still left with what happens to the Palestinians. And that's not at all clear to me. Now, it, it, it's true that the Palestinian leadership, you know, PA and so forth, is deeply inadequate basically i mean you know it's it's it's, it's they're, they're not inspiring leaders and they're not they they, they seem to be for, I mean, for reasons which i understand i mean it is hard for them still stuck in a sort of negotiating track which ended you know 
essentially, we look back now with the Babin's assassination. But but then the Palestinians as a whole are not going anywhere. So what happens to? And I put this question to the Israeli ambassador the other day. And and, and what happens to the Palestinians? Is is the future a Palestinian state? Something that's not a state but gives them an element of self-government? Is it an economic economic freedom? Is there no political freedom? What is it? What is this thing that they get? You know, in in Ramallah or Nablus or or, or, or Hebron or, or or wherever. And that's still not clear to me. And that, and, that, and that still needs to be addressed, it seems to me. Because you're, still, you're back to the, to the question of whether Israel exercises the quasi-colonial control over, over, over these communities, um, or whether they have a self-government that allows them to escape from that, uh, or whether you have a, 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 single, a, single, you know, a, a single state, which I, I just think is inconceivable. Mm-hmm. But if it's inconceivable, what's the alternative? And I, and I think, you know, it may be that over time, politicians think that the Palestinians would essentially in some way gravitate under, to, to, under the, to, to the Hashemite, to, to Jordan, you know, which is the, the old dream. But that, again, I think is, is deeply problematic, partly because of Jordan's own weakness, partly because of the Hashemites' own challenges inside, inside Jordan, dealing with, you know, the population which is, which is split and the issue of the holy sites in, in, in Jerusalem. What happens to Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. You know, anything that, that basically means that the Hashemites cease to, 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 to play as they are, as, as under the, the, the various treaties they are supposed to play, the role of protectors of the Muslim sites, Muslim holy sites, you know, is it, it would see a body blow to them. Yeah. So I, that's what I'm trying to puzzle out. And that, that it seems to me is where any other government needs to focus attention. What is the next step? And the next step is clearly, I mean, the Israeli ambassador said, I agree with it, it's between Israel and, Palis- Israel and Palestinians. There has to be a negotiation. Will the US return to, to the sort of activism the Obama administration, particularly the Obama two with Kerry and the rest of it. My guess is, my guess, and it is always a guess. My guess is no, because we, it, it, the cost of doing. I mean, you, 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 there's, there's lots of other things to worry about, and everybody knows that in the Arab world as a whole, the Palestinian issue has, doesn't have the salience that it did even 20 years ago. But it's still there, and Iran will exploit any weaknesses. It's it's something that isn't a first order problem, but it is a problem, and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be thought about. I thought just one last topic I want to ask you about is, is Islamism. Obviously, in 2015, you wrote the government's foreign and policy review into the Muslim Brotherhood. And I recently just read your, your new policy exchange piece report on Islamism, which was, was fantastic. It got me thinking about something you said in 2017 when you spoke to Fathom Forum. You said that the key to confronting the Islamist challenge for the UK government and Western governments is to understand what the challenge actually is. Yeah. So... It's been three years since you said that. Do you think we have a better understanding of what the Islamist challenge is? Great question. Great question. I'm writing something else about this for policy exchange as well, okay. on, on, on what's happening in Austria. That's a sort of, that's a hinge. Um, and it is absolutely uh, fascinating. I think, you know, if you look at what's happening uh, in the policy space in France, Austria, and to a certain extent, Germany, there has been a, there has been a, a, a significant shift in attitudes towards Islamism and organized Islamist groups inside all three countries. Now, of course, you know, in France, in particular, this has been driven, or this has been accentuated by recent, by the recent attacks, the two November attack in Vienna and, and, and the horrible attacks in, in, in the, uh, just outside Paris and in Nice um, uh, in France uh, over the last couple of months. But I think they have just accentuated a trend. Because you look at the sort of things that Macron was already saying about you know, the, the unitary nature of French citizenship, of the need to belong and the rest of it. And the sort of things that, that Kurtz has been in Austria and his ministers have been saying since 2017, since essentially the Volkspartei uh, became uh, the majority party of government. 
and now with an enhanced uh, majority in the last election. And I think these recent attacks have just simply accelerated that trend. And I think what we've seen is a, is a, is a, is a recognition that simply wasn't there, uh, even maybe five or 10 years, five, even maybe five years ago, at governmental level. I think it was a lot of popular concern everywhere, but not a governmental level, that this is a challenge we need to look at, understand and do something about. And the challenge is fundamentally an ideological challenge to the, basis, the basic jurisdictional uh, and legal uh, foundation of the Western state. I mean, that's how, that's how I see it. Now, you might say this is an exaggeration, these are small groups and the rest of it. But if, so if you look at, at what the, the Austrian police are, are, are saying in terms of the results, the provisional results, of the raids that they carried out uh, 10 days ago. I mean, it, it is pretty extraordinary in terms of foreign funding, in terms of, 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 uh, of radical literature, in terms of... Now, um, they and the Germans can both say this in the knowledge that there are, there, there are specific laws which prohibit a range of things which they claim to have discovered. And these laws are the, the, the Grundgesetz in, in, in Germany, the foundational law, which is which was, uh, which was um, uh, dated from, I think, 48. Uh, and the Austrian uh, Verbotsgesetz, which was, which was designed to deal with, with, with the aftershocks of, of National Socialism, of course, which bans a whole range of, criminalizes a whole range of, 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 uh, of opinions. Also covering uh, elements of what Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, and other Islamist groups do believe and promote. And in Islam Gazette, and the Islam Gazette states actually from 1912, but it was, it was solely revised in 2015. And it, it, it provides duties and also obligations. And the key obligation in the, in the Austrian uh, Islam Gazette is, 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 is a, the, the absolute primacy of Austrian law over, over uh, Sharia law, I mean, which it seems to me absolutely fundamental. These are incompatible systems. Mm. I mean, they, they come out of different traditions. They mean different things. The, the Islamic political system, the socio-political system, is based on revelation. Uh, the Western political system is based on Roman law. And I think this is, this is an essential difference. I, so I think in Austria, Germany, I mean, Germany, of course, is, 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 is complicated because of the lender, because of, of Merkel's coalition. You know, Merkel, I don't express his opinion about this, but, but, uh, but the, the interior minister does. But you also have a Fessenschutz, I mean, the, the domestic intelligence agent, which, which is, uh, in its public pronouncements on this, and its public writings on this, absolutely clear mm. about, the, about, the, about the way in which Islamist doctrines undermine the Constitution. They say this. Mm. So the Austrians. This country, so far, not so much. I mean, I think, I think there has been a certain shift. And, of course, the government is, 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 is preoccupied with COVID and Brexit and all this sort of stuff. So you know, a lot of the policy oxygen has been sucked out of the room. But I think, uh, and it has been interesting, the way in which it doesn't look as if the government has provided full backing to the sort of things that Macron has been saying, or Kurtz has been saying in the rest of it. You know, there is a time, there is a point at which you have to choose, I think. Mm, fascinating. But putting the domestic challenge aside for a second, I thought we could just talk about the foreign policy dimension. How do you rate places like the UAE's handling of, of Islamism? Do you think it, it confuses us in our, in our handling, or is it something which we should look towards? And I think I mean, a lot of people, you know, so the, the criminal, the outlawing of, of the Brotherhood, the stigmatization of the, of the Brotherhood as a, as, a, as a terrorist organization, you know, that was. And then, now, people said at the time when it happened uh, that this is, this is cynical and it's simply it's an expression of, you know, some sort of, it's some sort of power play. Actually, it goes back a long, long way. You know, and, you know, Mohammed bin Zayed has been concerned about this, and he will say, and he said it to people uh, that you know he knows about this because he he came into contact with, with brothers himself when he was young, receiving his education. He nearly became a Muslim brother himself, so he knows what he's talking about. 
which actually is interesting because that's also the sort of thing that someone like Ahmed Mansour, the, 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 the German um, uh, psychologist who actually is one of the foremost voices against Islamism in Germany, says himself, you know, I became, I, I was a radical myself. I was an Islamist. The most recent thing I said, you know, he, I, how, how did you stop being an Islamist? I read Nietzsche and Freud, which is fantastic. You know, I, I, I'm sure Nietzsche would would would, uh, would would be spinning in his grave to think that this was this was anyway. But it's the same sort of sort of def, sort of this personal experience translating into 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 a, into a, into a world into a world view, which you then try and implement. Uh, and I think people patronised the Emirates uh, at the time for doing this, and you know it's entirely wrong. Now, I'm not saying you can do this in this because you know what are you criminalising? What, what, what is the Muslim Brotherhood? You know, if you saw someone walking down the street, is he a Muslim Brotherhood or isn't he? I, I, who knows? There isn't anything in this country called the Muslim Brotherhood, and you need you need real evidence to to, 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 get, to go to those sort of lengths. You need real evidence um, which will stand up in court, uh, and uh, you know I don't think that's available. The challenge for me is, 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 is an ideological challenge, um, which is problematic for Western states. It's more problematic for Western states than it is for Arab states. Uh, and that's partly because, you know, Arab states are generally Muslim states. And, and, and so it's, 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 it's an argument within Islam about what Islam says in terms of, you know, your socio-political uh, organization. And if you're Mohammed Zayed or Mohammed Salman or, or Sisi, I mean, you know, they make it wrong. I don't agree with anything. With, with, I don't agree with everything they say. But they, they can speak from a position of, 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 of being authentically Muslim. I think, I think it is difficult for Western governments to do. What that means is the Western governments have to be aware of what it is that makes them and their nation states and political systems what it is. And I think, you know, for too long, Western states, have, we, we, we thought rather smugly that, you know, that we represent universal values, you know, as a, a, a sort of natural law. Um, of, uh, of states, which I don't think is true at all. You know, if it's valuable, you've got to fight for it. You do really have to, you've got to fight for your right to govern. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's something I think that is still, I think Macron now gets it, I think Kurtz gets it, I don't, I'm not sure it's true in this country. John, that was, um, that was a really fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Mm -hmm.